for a longevity physician like me, if I cannot bring a person to a better biological age or to an optimal biological age for that person at that specific point of time, calculated with a credible clock, then it's a failure. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, how to live longer, healthier life. We are produced by InstaTracker, your science-based guide to optimize your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Evelyn Bishop. Dr. Bishop is the Chief Physician Associate of Internal Medicine at the University Hospital uh, in uh, Shanghai. She is also a concierge longevity physician for an executive longevity patient. Her focus is oncology and longevity medicine, artificial intelligence, and digital health, precision medicine, biogenotology, and uh, jetro-oncology. In addition to publishing over 80 peer-reviewed papers, she also a frequent speaker at scientific and medicine conference in Asia and Europe. Dr. Bishop uh, sits in several scientific advisory board of biotech and longevity hubs. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you Evelyn. so much, Jill, for having me. Thank you so much for everybody on the team for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure and honor. Yeah, so uh, Evelyn, I met you a few weeks ago in Europe and we just uh, spoke about flying from Europe and all of that. And it's uh, a nightmare. Actually, I had the same nightmare when I flew from Copenhagen to Boston. My flight, uh, my flight was delayed and I had to spend another night in Copenhagen, which is not a bad place to stay, but it wasn't uh, exciting. So we know that definitely the world is uh, currently not friendly for uh, traveling around. And uh, Usually at uh, Longevity by Design, we'll, we like to ask our guests and start by asking what br- brought you to become a scientist? What brought you to be a physician? Uh, what is your uh, uh, early age uh, reason for you to become a oh, scientist? Oh, a great question. A um, I don't remember when I was asked this question last time, but I'm very happy to share. It's quite straightforward. When I was a child, I was uh, very much impressed by genetic engineering. And um, my clear goal was always that I would be a genetic engineer. I will be working in the, perhaps also in some somehow genetics in the medical field. Well, when I finished my high school, I then heard recommendation or an advice from from my teacher that you know that was one of the best advice that I had gotten in my life, which was go study medicine. Go study medicine and then you can always decide if you're going to go to the lab or you're going to do something else. Just open the bigger door for yourself and then you will choose which room you want to be in. And when I was studying in the first uh, two years, in the first four semesters, I was very, very lucky to um, be allowed by Professor Kai Simmons at the Max Planck Institute of Molecular Biology and Genetics that was just right next door to my medical school. 
to be a medical student there. And I ended up doing my medical thesis there. And I fell in love with the lab, with basic science. I worked a lot later on also with, with people there on exosomes, actually. I come from that field in neurodegeneration. But at some point of time, well, later on in my, in my studies, I really fell in with in the biggest love with the clinic. So working with the patients. And uh, so therefore, I'm a full-time clinician. This is what I love to do. And I'm in the sick care and right now also in longevity, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But still, whenever I can, I maintain some, some, some basic level of the basic research, specifically on biomarkers, predictive and prognostic biomarkers, uh, mostly in oncology. Yeah. Excellent. And, and you raised the point, uh, longevity clinics, which is uh, fascinating to me. And we discuss it a lot when we met uh, a few weeks ago, and actually we spent a few sessions about that. So maybe you can uh, uh, give some background for our audience. What are longevity clinics? What does it mean? Uh, what are right, the so basics about that? Maybe let's tell the, the, the audience also what we did in Copenhagen <laughs> so that there is a big clarity about that. So we... <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> we, sure. we were at the conference, the largest longevity conference in the world called ARDD. And it was the ninth edition. Next year is the 10th one. And for the past two years, the very first day actually of the, of the conference is called Longevity Medicine Workshop or now relabeled to Longevity Medicine Day, where we have MDs and PhDs and um physicians talking about longevity and longevity medicine specifically. However, the entire conference is, of course, based around longevity, science, translation, investments, and so on. So this is where we were. <laughs> but myself as a clinician, I do work in a university hospitals, in the ICU, internal medicine, but also in as a longevity concierge physician. So I do have my longevity patients. I believe it's important to say that longevity is a very nascent field. So we are still working probably on the definition of longevity itself. So it's, it's very hard to say what is a, you know, credible longevity clinic in that sense. But there are efforts. So Human Longevity HLI is one example of a clinic that is implementing longevity definitely into, you know, diagnosing the patient and then also now leading the patient. But everything there was very much evidence-based and grounded in the full-body MRI and the genetics. Other centers, longevity centers and say like that, are also now giving the opportunity to people to comprehensively at one spot, for example, run various biological clocks and do some extended diagnostics that they could probably not get in a normal healthcare setting. But what I'm mostly excited about is actually the creation of longevity. Uh, I like to call them longevity departments, but I don't think it will be it will be a mainstream name of that. So let's say longevity clinic, but affiliated to university hospitals, for example, to universities or to other bo bo bodies that will really pronounce the direct translation, the direct con contact of science and clinic, so really being physically with the patient and having the physicians that are being educated to practice longevity medicine, and at the same time, help us to grow, hopefully also as a global network, to create the evidence base, to create more puzzles that we can bring together to create also credible validated guidelines. 
And for this, for example, we created the new medical society. We called it Healthy Longevity Medical Society. And that medical society is specifically created for MDs primarily, for, for healthcare professionals, of course, targeting primarily MDs, because this is the group that is so extremely important. And so far, there was no global society that would help them to work together, to be educated, and at the same time develop guidelines and develop protocols, validate biomarkers that are needed for that, and ultimately also know with whom and how to work. So, of course, the society will then will be extremely interdisciplinary and, and have connections to other um, people from the longevity arena and ecosystem, AI scientists, industry, and so on, labs. So that's, you know, those are the examples of where we are transiting from longevity clinic being maybe some small type of a practice of one person practice at the moment to really something very big, bringing curriculum of longevity medicine into the med schools, bringing universities and opening longevity centers at the universities like in Singapore or now also in Israel at uh, Shiba. And yeah, so those those developments are just so extremely exciting. Excellent. And uh, for our audience that are not aware so much about uh, longevity clinics, so let's assume that I'm as a patient or client, whatever you want to call it, come to a longevity clinic or meet with a longevity physician. Can you explain what is the difference between the experience of a patient going to his normal yearly assessment at a normal clinic versus longevity clinic? What are the different uh, things that you will uh, experience uh, right, in the right. longevity so clinic? Right, so it's a very good question, right? Optimally, such a longevity place, longevity department or clinic where, where we actually have longevity physicians working with a patient I like to, you know, very German about that, I like to structure things. And uh, I think if in medicine, we always have the diagnostics and we have the therapies. Yeah, Diagnostics and interventions, let's say like that. And the diagnostic part of longevity medicine is now fairly well developed, of course, boomingly developing further. But this diagnostic part will be the unique edge of the longevity clinics going from all the measurements of monitorings from continuous to yearly monitorings 24-7. A biological age, I think, is the ultimate uh, guidance at the end of the day for the physician. Now, we can talk long time about which part of the biological age, like we know that uh, every organ, every system is aging differently at a different speed and inter like influencing each other. It's all intersected. Um, so I think we will see a variety of new validated biological aging clocks coming up at some point of time. Perhaps there will be also a good algorithm to measure the predictions of biological age speed or rate in the organism. There will be, of course, radiological data that will be gathered, surely AI algorithm enforced imaging such as whole whole body MRI, just, just as an example, maybe it will be a different type because MRI, yeah, we, we are still learning. And other diagnostics that perhaps in the healthcare system, we do not do or do not see, or we do not do them in people who are 
per se healthy. It means they do not have an acute or chronic apparent disease. We would not do that. And in a preventive setting, they might or might not get it. But surely in a preventive center, I don't know any preventive center that is uh, regularly routinely implementing biological aging drugs, for example, in the practice. And for a longevity physician like me, if I cannot bring a person to a better biological age or to an optimal biological age for that person at that specific point of time, calculated with a credible clock, then it's a failure, right? So, so that's, I think that's the biggest difference. But at this point, I also would like to mention, I think at the same time, and that's my big concern or what I would love to see and we are working on and, and it's happening, is that some of the elements of longevity medicine will also be brought to the so-called typical, you said normal, sick care. Let me give you an example. So in Switzerland, for example, in Basel University Hospital, we are now in the oncology department implementing biological aging clocks and some other longevity-specific diagnostics like NLP-based you know, speech recording, saliva testings, in order to, number one, of course, learn, of course, learn more how to better triage the patients for a specific therapy when they have cancer, and also how to guide them and follow them up after their therapy yeah, to optimize their biological age because every patient that has cancer is aging faster biologically, no matter which type of therapy they got. So as we see elements of so-called normal medicine, the, the medicine of the standard as we know it in the longevity medicine, I think we are also seeing the trend vice versa, and that's you know, at some point of time when the decision of which therapy and which guideline to follow for a specific patient will be done not by the chronological age, but by the biological age, as just one of many, many components, that will be, I think, a big success of medicine in general. Excellent. That's, that was a very good explanation. And now we understand what is the success of longevity medicine practice. My next question is about the interventions. So uh, we know that in the longevity field, we are talking about rapamycin and metformin and MAD analogs and all of that. So a, a patient that coming to longevity medicine should expect to receive those intervention or the intervention will be more like uh, the general and the intervention that usually received by uh, your uh, primary care physician? Well, it's a great question, right? And I would hope, and I think I'm not the only one that that is aiming for this to happen, that not only internal medicine physicians, for example, and geriatricians will be very passionate about the field, knowledgeable then, will have the access to good education and to validated protocols, but also especially primary care physicians, right? Now, again, we don't have them in all the countries. I live in China. There is no such a concept of a primary care physician, yeah? But there, there, there are other ones, so comparable. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. That's where we will see, if we work collaboratively, that also those physicians that will be leading the patients for a longer time, because it's all about longitudinal data, that they will also be the ones to then give the therapies. Now, what this will be specifically, I, I wouldn't put myself in a position to say it will be rapamycin or it will be some other thing. But yes, I would say hopefully, I hope very much for all the trials that are ongoing for Senolytics, 
for drug protectors, for AI-based developed drugs, for their purpose drugs, and for other interventions, and not only pharmacological ones, right? That their trials will work, that they will show safe benefits, right? So also the toxic side, we should be very much aware of it and that they will be applicable to people and hopefully then for everyone, accessible for everyone. So for this, of course, we need involvement from now on already from insurance companies and other bodies that are, that are supporting the field, right? Foundations, etc., and public health bodies, yeah, authorities. Interesting. And related to the age of an average patient, So is it only for the elderly, someone in his 60s, 70s, 80s, and hopefully 150? Or is it also for younger audience that strive to live longer? Of course, but are still of course. It's for, it should be for everyone. It's for everyone a little different, right? Because I can give an example from what I do. My patients are ranging in their age from probably something mid-20s to right now my oldest patient is... 80 and I'm close to taking a patient that is 86 and of course it's a different approach yeah but uh, the goal is the same everybody wants to live healthier it's not about living longer that much at least not for me it's about extension of the health span actually we came up with the definition now we don't want to claim that we are the one to define the field but somehow Someone has to. And we took upon ourselves this task and we will try to also argumentate it and for, send for a peer review. The Executive Committee of the Healthy Longevity Medicine Society defined the field of healthy longevity as extension of the health span and optimization of the health span across the lifespan. And this pre pretty much means that if the lifespan will then be extended in good health, great. Extension of lifespan without extension of health span makes no, uh, I mean, <laughs> that's already done. It's there. This is why we have the silver tsunami. That's why we have a um, huge number of, um, of percentage of population that is elderly. So it is for every group age. I think at some point of time, we'll even see longevity medicine applied to uh, even much younger ages. Yeah. As we go and as we learn, I think it will, it will get there as well in the pediatric field as well. Um, but at the very beginning, definitely not only for elderly although, or those who feel <laughs> elderly, but uh, for also for the younger ones that feel healthy and want to extend and optimize their performance. Yeah, and uh, I fully agree with you that we are starting to age when we are sexually mature. So uh, you can treat it as early as possible. And it's like uh, saving for your retirement. If you save early, you have more money. If you save late, you have less money. It's exactly the same. And uh, you should try and work on it as early as possible. Uh, my next point or question is about uh, artificial and uh, intelligent or AI. So it's a, it's a buzzword. A lot of people are using it. And uh, I've seen a lot of talking about that, but not a lot of uh, real uh, use of AI. And I know that you are very passionate about it and uh, uh, you are uh, using AI in your practice. So can you give us an example of how AI is working, uh, working in, in longevity, longevity practice? Yes. So I think AI is now pretty much everywhere, also in the sick care, like all the AI algorithms, even in our uh, oncological practice today are um, pretty much standard 
in, in most of the places I worked in. But in terms of longevity, medicine, I, AI plays an even bigger role because I think in longevity medicine, we see in the diagnostic part and the longitudinal development in general, the biggest, the highest level of very heterogeneous, extremely multimodal data that have to be brought together and an objective function. So let's say a question that a person has as a physician, for example, what is the biological age of a patient? What is the optimal biological age of this patient at this point of time? Which parameters are the most important? How to influence them to which level so that we can achieve the the best biological age and so on? That is only possible right now with the combination of human intelligence and artificial intelligence. I'm not one of those people who shift everything to the AI, still not autonomous in, in a way in medicine. I don't think it. so it's a combination. It's, it's, it's a help. It's a tool that is almost mandatory in order to really make sense from this a huge amount of data, right? You have to imagine you have everything from the genetics, from the whole omics, through the entire physiological testing, through some imaging testing, then through some liquid biopsies, then through some monitoring that is like 24-7, and then also all the epigenetic factors, and then yeah. also the cerebral ones, both on the neural, psychological, and mental part. So we need AI to bring it all together. Yeah, so AI algorithms to... Yeah. So, so yeah. So, what you are saying is basically AI is a tool for the physician to crunch a lot of data and make sense of. But at the end of the day, the physician is uh, the one that makes the decision and uh, decide how to treat or if to treat, which makes a lot of sense. You also mention genetics, and it's very interesting to know and understand how genetic play in longevity or longevity medicine. What are the genetics? Uh, a tools or tests that you are doing and what are the right, interpretation right. so of them? Genetics is a very interesting part, both genetics in the way people associate it with pathological signs or mutations. So the very typical one is APOE4 mutation or a variant uh, expression that will give a high risk for Alzheimer's. So there's really a, some very, very typical gene or very, very typical mutation that is disease-related. This we already have, and that's also practiced in the sick care, like hematology, oncology, number one thing that we do. But in terms of longevity, there is a little bit of a different different approach. Besides of that, on top of that, what I just mentioned, the pathology-related genetical testing, we also do quite a lot of polymorphic risk scores, right? So based on what we are learning now around all the SNPs and genes that that the signatures that we have, and that's a constant learning. Uh, we know which genes, number one, are, for example, related to specific diseases, so we can calculate a score, then how they interrelate with each other, that's another score. And last but not least, the pharmacogenetics is very helpful in daily life, right? So just to know if a specific drug or a target of a substance family is working for a patient or not, is, is of course a door opener and still very nascent field, in my opinion as well. There are great publications and books and everything, but 
I guess we will come to a point where genetic signature will actually determine the way we are treating the patient and there will be new substances created then specifically for that. So we're moving really towards more and more and more individual practice. Yeah, and I think that the old example about pharma genetics uh, is a very good one because I don't think, uh, I don't know any physician that is not uh, ahead of the curve like you that uh, will look at that and come and say, hey, this drug is not good for you because you have those uh, polymorphisms. So that, and it's definitely very important because you can get the adverse effect from that. So I, I'm a, I applaud well, you on uh, doing that, which there is are many uh, doctors uh, really ahead that, of the curve. <laughs> Yes, luckily, but we need more, of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we need, we need more for sure. And so before, uh, earlier in our discussion, you mentioned healthspan and uh, I think that that's a term that I would like to spend a bit on that because uh, everyone think, okay, uh, longevity, that's mean the time between I was born to the time that I will die. <laughs> but the uh, healthspan means something different. And oh, I would like you to define it. If I you wish, <laughs> I wish I could give a definition. Uh, I could probably give my own personal <laughs> view and a little bit of a taste. But let's say we are working on it. We are trying to to define it and to publish it as a next step after we have defined longevity medicine. Actually, I just learned during the travels and conferences that the initial person that that used it and put it into place was actually Dr. Felipe Sierra. And he mentioned that it would be very nice to have a fixed definition of health span. I think what we are now understanding under this word is that the, or these are the years of life that are lived in good health. And if we are now choosing the definition by the WHO of what health is, so the state of well-being, both mentally and physically, rather than the, only the absence of diseases, or we choose another definition of, of health, for example, having some diseases, but still having a fantastic quality of life, right? So it's very different for everyone. I guess here there is a debate, but definitely this span of life, those years that I that are lived with subjectively and objectively good health. And for me personally, that also means performance, good or even optimal performance, right? Of a specific person. And a longevity physician will always look at, okay, this is your performance now. If it's good, that's great. Can we optimize it? Can we make it better? Yes, great. What do we want to do it? The patient wants needs to want it. If yes, then then we work together towards that as well. Yeah, and uh, I, I read uh, an article from Matt Kemberline, which was a guest here uh, a few episodes ago, and he wrote a full paper, a full review or opinion paper mm -hmm. about what is health span. So that's me. How important it is, and how. I agree with you. It's everyone can define it differently. One disease is already that you are sick or if you have a minor disease. So it's not well defined, as you said, but uh, I think that for me, the definition is the time from birth to the time that you are cannot perform what you can perform in a, as a normal a human being or a, be as good as you can. But it's definitely not, a, it's not an easy term to, de, to define. And I agree that uh, we need in the field to come with a definition that everyone agrees with, because then it will be easier to make an experiment and come and say, hey, this drug allow you to live to have a hand span of that, and the other drug is not. Without that, it will be very hard to compare experiment. I would like now to start talking about one of, uh, I think, your favorite subject, which are oh. the aging clocks. And, uh, and specifically, I uh, uh, would like to know 
which uh, kind of clocks are you using in your practice? I know that there are a lot of clocks right now, epigenetic clock and the proteomics and the blood, uh, blood biomarker clock and expression clocks and the behavioral clocks. So w- what are you using in your practice? Um, yeah, so biological aging clocks are a very useful tool for any longevity physician. And I'm using a variety of those that are available. It's very much like the blood-based aging clocks um, because I can relatively frequently track the changes if I'm doing some sort of interventions, the lifestyle or or otherwise with my patients. And it's, of course, always useful to have another set of of clocks, right? So also using the photo age clock and also using some of the physiological aging clocks. It's very nice to have also the epigenetic aging clocks, right? They're they're very nice, very good. Also like now the brain type of clock, right? So what is the brain age based on quantifications? So yeah, a a variety of tools. And, And I think, and yeah, I think, you know, I'm so excited to see more of those clocks coming. So the cardio clock and the microbiome clock, you know, so, so many, so many that are now in the pipeline and I just can't wait. Right. But I would love to later on, of course, now we are talking probably a few years to also have a good comparison and a good evidence base in the clinic on, you know, how we can best make use of, of them and for, for which patient groups, for which biological aging groups and so on. Yeah. And, uh, I couldn't agree more with you about the uh, blood-based clocks because I think that what's nice about them, and that's actually why we are using a blood-based clocky atinsel tracker, is you can have a, a C-action reaction and also we, you can uh, easily find the intervention to feed them. While when you look at epigenetic clock, it's very hard to understand, okay, what does it mean and how can I intervene and change them? Maybe in the future, but today we are not there. So I think that it's a uh, 100% agree with you on that. I, I would like to ask now, what are, how good is the accuracy of uh, those clocks? How well are they predicting the age of a specific yeah, so patient? Different clocks have different accuracy. And I, of course, try to use, or I use those clocks that are well published, where I kind of understand what is the mean deviation. So... Most of the clocks right now that, that are available are very precise, so, so one can trust them. And of course, it's also all about the trends and how comparable the data set for, for the calculation that has been used is being applied. But for example, the blood aging clocks the, on, based on the, on the deep learning technologies, deep neuronal networks, they are, they are fairly, very precise. So the, the means there are like minus three, minus five. And in the practice, it means usually that when I see that somebody's biological age is higher than the chronological age, usually that means that there is something that that is quite, let's say, not pathologic, but there is quite a quite a room of immediate action <laughs> necessity. And um, but it also, I think, at, at this point, it's important to mention to restore the biological age of the optimal performance does not mean that we have to reverse the biological age on the clock as much as possible. It's not about the quantity here. It's about where is the optimal biological age at that point of time for this specific patient, right? So so it's important that the biological age clock will also tell me, okay, so this is the bio age now, but what 
is the optimal one and what how do I get there right so that that's also very important not only the status quo but where is the optimum yeah I agree it's uh, it doesn't make sense for someone that is 80 to uh, to strive to have a biological age of 20 I, I'm fully agree with you and I, I've seen a lot of instant tracker uh, customer <laughs> coming to me and say hey I'm a 75 and my uh, inner edge, we call it inner edge, the clock uh, is 50. I want to be 25. Can I be like that? And I'm saying, no, you can't. You are already 75. Uh, so so that's an uh, excellent point and uh, it's very important for our audience to know. You mentioned uh, a lot about uh, blood clocks and uh, so on. So what is, in your opinion, the most important biomarkers in the blood clocks for a healthy agent? What uh, if a user... Uh, want to pay attention to a few blood biomarkers, what, what are they? It's hard to answer because every algorithm will use a different set. And for example, the clocks that I'm using, they have at the moment optimally 45 parameters and their weighting in the algorithm is different. Uh, but when we go back to the Horvath, Stephen, you know, great Stephen Horvath's first clocks in 20. 13, there we see the basic parameters that still play the most important role, like albumin and glucose and bun and so on. But yeah. right, but I, it's mm -hmm. not recommendable again to focus only on on a very few selected ones or just to track one parameter over the span and, and base it on on that one, such as cholesterol, for example. That's not the idea here, right? That a patient or a physician can do that themselves. It's very the integration of different parameters and to to know what is the scalability of each of them in the algorithm. So you are saying it's an holistic way to look at it. And I, I would add also that it depends on the person because if you have like a sort of, a, and that's where I think the genetics coming, if you have a high risk for a high genetic risk to have cardiovascular disease, then look at the markers that related to that. If you have high risk for diabetes, maybe you should look at a bit of different markers. So it's, a, it's a, yeah, I, I understand and I agree with you. So today in our world, uh, uh, people like us or people that are uh, uh, listening to our podcast using a lot of way to track themselves. So you can see, I have like, <laughs> a, I have Fitbit, I have Apple Watch, I have Oaring and I know people, some people are even more crazier than me. And uh, so they basically, we are tracking our sleep, tracking our exercise, tracking our resting heart rate, tracking our uh, VO2 max. What is, in your opinion, in those uh, physiological markers, which of them is the, the one that, uh, or the two, that you will uh, recommend our uh, listener to pay Check attention? Check as much as you can. <laughs> That's my def definitely uh, my, my first advice. And <laughs> the same like for the... Um, aging clocks or the parameters to track, right? Which, which you mentioned, there, if there is a high risk score for somebody in, in terms of other, let's say, anam anamnesis, right? There's, by the way, also biological anamnestic clock. But it doesn't mean that we should only focus on that arena or on that specific system. Uh, the opposite, we should definitely aim for as many parameters to be fueled into a into an aging clock as possible, or smartly, of course, in terms of a you know, proper AI algorithm that's validated and so on. But uh, in terms of physiological trackers, well, if I could recommend the basics of the basics that one can track and should track if they are you know, curious about themselves and get the feedback is, uh, well, I love CGM, right? So glucose monitoring, at least for a specific uh, period of time, just to know 
is there a hypoglycemia in the night at the end of the day? Do I have a response to some specific foods that I didn't know about? Am I constantly over a specific limit, right? Over six through the day. Why is that? You know, if somebody is implementing intermittent fasting, even unknowingly, there are people like this who I always invite very much, um, then um, how well does it go for them? And then, you know, track the vital signs. I track my patients 24-7 on blood pressure and blood pulse, heart rate variability and oxygen. So this is all tracked continuously by a band. For the night, I do like to use sleep apnea trackers, right, for the blood pulse and then calculate the algorithm. So sleep parameters in that sense, rather than just a sleeping score type of quality score or REM phases. I mean, that's good to know. It's very valuable. But um, if one can do more, that's always even better. And I have patients and know people that have even more devices uh, than you on themselves. And they, they say the biggest problem right now in this field is that we do not have enough limbs. So put them on. So, you know. Maybe we need to uh, reverse engineer ourselves and have 11 right. or 12 fingers that, that will allow us to, to have more, <laughs> more aura rings or so. I just want to, a note that I want to add is that uh, whoever is interested about a CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitoring, we had an episode a couple of weeks ago about uh, dedicated to continuous glucose monitoring. So you are uh, more than welcome to uh, listen to that. And I would like to continue and ask you, and uh, maybe because I know you in the last months and we spoke a few times and every time... Uh, that we spoke, you have been maybe in different continent or at least a different country. So you are traveling uh, around the world and uh, uh, seeing, basically you have a very good uh, view of uh, what's happening around the world about longevity uh, medicine. Is there an area in the world that uh, is more advanced in longevity medicine than other? And if there is, why is it that a certain area in the world is more Good question. I think, so I'm now just really lucky that during my first time travels after uh, three years after COVID, um, I am traveling to various conferences and it's so nice to see so many events happening on longevity in, in various countries and continents. I think we see different developments and different speeds in that areas in different countries. So let me give you an example. We see great, of course, America has great centers for longevity research and fantastic experts who are also partially here on the show, right? So so we have great things going there, randomized controlled trials that are being started, you know, intersecting with the field or in the field. And also not only in the human longevity, right? Also in the pet longevity. So you mentioned Matt, who is, you know, phenomenal. And uh, me as an animal lover, I'm looking towards um, for good results there, you know, egoistically. But also, of course, then later on looking at the translation back and forth with the, with the humans. I think China is, of course... Um, a very good example of where digitalization and AI plays a big role. And this comes together with the fact that the maturity of society towards AI there is, of course, extremely developed already, right? It's a little bit of a different world. Everything, pretty much everything is digital. And so that's why it's very natural for, for everybody just to collect their data. It's not something unusual. I think we see, of course, Singapore being a great scientific center there you know, in various fields of longevity, science and medicine translation. 
Uh, Israel, of course, with, uh, with a lot of startups that are then now being also put into the practice and, and, and the first academic longevity clinical center here being built up. And of course, Europe and Africa also have their own type of developments because there are just so many specifics that have to be taken into account. I have worked also in many healthcare systems, you know, in America, in China, in Europe, uh, in Australia. And everybody's a bit different. The approach towards the patients are also different and the policies are different. So I think we see great successes in some maybe smaller areas and on different continents. And that's why, you know, this type of collaborative work should should be enforced. And uh, I'm, I'm going to quote here somebody that's not coming from me. It's from Dr. Mahmoud Khan. He mentioned in his in his talks that in longevity, we need collaboration, coordination, and leadership. <laughs> but the point of coordination and collaboration is something that I think is just so extremely crucial so that so that we can really advance together and bring the great successes and the specifics from all the different geopolitical areas together. Yeah. And uh, just a note, uh, Mahmoud Khan is uh, leading uh, a very big fund that's, uh, that invests in aging. They they uh, announced that they will invest around $1 billion a year in aging research. And uh, this fund coming from uh, Saudi Arabia, which is not the place that I was assumed that it will come, but it's great. Uh, so I think that uh, another example that uh, the longevity uh, uh, movement is a uh, uh, multinational and it's not only the U.S. Our majority of our audience is in the U.S. and I think that's good for them to understand. It's all over. It's not only the U.S. and uh, there is a lot of excitement about it. So that's uh, bring me to my next question is if uh, you had a magic wand and you could move 10 years ahead and now we are in uh, 2032. What will be, in your opinion, the, let's say, the ratio between uh, longevity clinics versus normal clinics? It will be 100% longevity clinics or will still have, uh, I don't know, 99% normal clinics and only 1% uh, longevity mm, clinics? If you ask me about my dream, I would say we will have a longevity department in every, in every hospital. That would be, for me, personally, something that I would love to see. But again, I think it's not... Uh, not bad to have also a different type of uh, structure where we have longevity clinics um, and and hospitals so the sick care and the healthcare you know collaboratively working together but as i mentioned at the very beginning i hope that the longevity medicine interventions will find place in the healthcare system as we know it now so also the physicians in various fields and again longevity medicine is is really a home for so many disciplines, right? The, it's 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 everything. It's endocrinology, psychology, psychiatry. It's uh, it's pretty much everything, and that's why, yeah. And I hope we will not even see a dichotomy here that you know fifty fifty or something between longevity and and, and normal. We we will see it as a as a unity. That would be something that I would like to see in twenty thirty two. That would be a reality. I don't know. That depends on our leaders, <laughs> how they will collaborate and coordinate us. Yeah, I agree. But our job, uh, uh, your, yours, Evelyn, and myself is to be a dreamers and to try to push to there. So I, I like uh, your vision. It's, uh, it's a very uh, positive vision. And it might not be happening in 2032, but even if in 2040 it will be like that, that's good. That's okay. It's uh, sometimes take longer. That's not a bad dream. Um, so I would like to uh, finish with a question that we are asking every guest in the podcast, 
And that's about uh, a tip or a trick that you have about uh, improving longevity. What do you do or what do you recommend for your uh, patient? What is the most important uh, intervention that you recommend for them to live better longer? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> I think the most important <laughs> the <I> most <laughs> important one is different for everyone. <laughs> and, and I think that's the, the most important advice is find a, a good physician and that, that can already guide you through the longevity interventions. Uh, do not experiment <laughs> without a good advice. And, but, but something that is definitely safe to say, maybe even if you, if, let's say you cannot find a longevity physician and you don't know what you could improve already besides of a better lifestyle, at least track yourself, collect your data. Because at some point of time, hopefully, and that's also one of my right dreams, is that we will have a lot of physicians that will you know, take your data and they will say, look, it's so great that you have it. Let's run it through an algorithm. This is your biological age. This is what we can do. That's the dosage of this and that that you have to, sh you know, should take. And that's your optimal interval in the intermittent fasting. That's your optimal percentage of uh, aerobic and anaerobic exercises at this specific point of the day. Yellow go, right? So that would be something that I would recommend. Yeah. And I have to say that nobody of our uh, other uh, 25 or so guests gave this tip, which is great, which is a unique tip. I think that it's very important uh, because we need to have a baseline. Because if you don't know what is your baseline when you have an issue, that's very hard to know where. And that's what we call a, an experiment of N of 1. So I 1% agree with you. Collect your data, store it, and at least to have it. Sometimes you can interpret it. Uh, we are a tensor tracker trying to do it as much as we can. But then when you will have some uh, issues, then uh, your physician or yourself can look at the data and come in and say, hey, that's my baseline and suddenly jumps so high. I have an issue and let's say, uh, let's treat it. So uh, a great uh, and unique tip. Thank you so much, Evelyn. It was a real pleasure. And uh, I think that uh, it was a fascinating discussion with you. And uh, I really appreciate uh, your time uh, after a, a very long uh, flight and uh, just landing uh, a few minutes ago. And uh, we look forward to explore the research in the field of longevity each month with you and the leading scientists such as Evelyn. For more uh, information, please go to insatracker.com. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast.